Hello, and welcome to Checks and Balances, Threats to This American Election. This weekly podcast is sponsored by Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers dedicated to bolstering the rule of law and opposing the degradation of American legal norms. My name is Paul Rosenzweig, and I'm your host. Joining me today as my guests on the podcast are Miranda Perry Fleischer and J.W. Veray, and our topic is the Trump tax returns and more broadly, finances and this presidency. Fostering free and fair elections is not a partisan issue, not a right-left issue, not a conservative, libertarian, or liberal or progressive issue. It's an American issue. And so, this podcast. We aspire to offer accurate information that captures the ground truth about our election process. We'll speak about what the law entails and how to make sure that every legal vote is counted. We'll talk about what is at stake in the election and why elections have consequences. Joining me today are Miranda Perry Fleischer and J.W. Veray. Professor Fleischer is at the University of San Diego, my old stomping grounds. She joined the U.S. Steve School of, of Law faculty in 2013. She's also taught at the University of Colorado Law School and the University of Illinois College of Law and as an acting assistant professor at NYU Law School, where she served as assistant editor of the Tax Law Review. Professor Veray is at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. He joined the law faculty in 2008 and teaches banking, securities and corporation law, as well as accounting for lawyers. He's been a visiting professor at Stanford Law School. His work teaching CLEs on law and accounting at law firms around the country was profiled in Above the Law. Both Miranda and JW are, with me, members of Checks and Balances. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks. We're delighted to be here. So let's start with something in the recent news, which is how we always start these shows. This week, there's one that seems right up your alley, JW. Last week, the New York Times reported that Trump officials told the board of the Hoover Institution in February that they were concerned about the impact of the pandemic back, back then, despite painting a rosier picture in the public at the same time. According to the Times, these concerns were circulated around to investors, and some of them adjusted their portfolios accordingly. Senator Elizabeth Warren has said that the incident appears to be a textbook case of insider trading and called on the SEC to review the information provided to the investors and the trading that happened afterwards. What are we to make of this? Assuming that the facts recounted are accurate, GAW, is this insider trading? Is it illegal? Should the SEC investigate? You know, it's it. The whole world is connected. Uh, so I'm a former Hoover Institution fellow. So I did six months of a visit out there in 2011, and while I was visiting, was the time when Congress passed the Stock Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act or Stock Act that prohibits insider trading on government information. Um, so uh, look, the, the the long and the short of it is. There may be something there to insider trading, but as I think through all the steps to get to an insider trading conviction, um, one of the things that's going to be difficult for the SEC or the DOJ to demonstrate would be that uh, this information was material, uh, that it wasn't already out in the in the in the public, um, and you know, I just from following uh, the 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 Twitter sphere for epidemiologists since January. Uh, I, you know, I know that there was a wealth of information out there in the public at, at, at contemporaneous to this time frame, whether it was February or March. Uh, the fact that they were um, 
being hypocritical about what they were telling the rest of the world is morally abhorrent. Uh, and I think it's it's terribly wrong. And I wish they had done more to warn us about what was going on. But you'd have a tough time showing insider trading. Uh, the second issue would be that the Hoover board in some way was going to give these officials something in exchange for the tip. Uh, and I, I'm not sure what that would be. Um, so it would be a, it would be a tough prosecution. But again, morally abhorrent to tell us what was going on. Well, morally abhorrent is, I guess, pretty bad. Yeah, but it isn't exactly... Um illegal. So, uh, so that's good news, I guess, really, in the, in the sense that we, we prefer it not to be illegal. Let's now turn, I guess, to the substance of the discussion today. I want to start with the tax returns that the New York Times has publicized and what they say about Trump's taxes. And again, none of us have seen the returns themselves. So let's acknowledge up front that we're relying on, their, on the accuracy of the Times's reporting. That having been said, the reports of Trump's tax returns seem to range from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, Miranda, let's start with the ridiculous, that Trump reportedly deducted $7,000 for hair grooming. Is that a legitimate deduction? And what does it say about Trump's approach to tax law generally? Well, it's actually even more ridiculous than you suggest, because I think it was $70,000 for hair grooming. And this is not deductible. And I think it shows he will unabashedly try to get away with whatever he can. So the rule that applies to regular people, even people who have to look a certain way <clears throat> for their job, like TV anchors that have to keep their nails manicured or military personnel who have to keep their hair a certain way, is that grooming expenses are inherently personal and not deductible. So the only time people are ever counseled to deduct these expenses is if they're entertainers and they have to look a specific way that's incompatible with their daily appearance for like a video shoot or a concert. So the members of KISS, they can deduct all that black and white makeup they wear in concerts. Maybe a red carpet actress could deduct the costs of a fancy updo with a whole bunch of hairspray that she wears on the red carpet and then immediately takes out at night. But a man's haircut is just not deductible. And I think this really exemplifies Trump's approach because there are a very tiny handful of specific instances where an entertainer can deduct a just barely similar expense. Even though ev the weight of the authority is against him, Trump can try to claim that deducting the haircuts isn't totally frivolous. And that's basically the standard for avoiding fraud. So they should know it's not deductible, but it's, it's just, 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 just barely enough to be plausible that it's probably not fraudulent. So you just said the F word, which is fraud. Um, and almost all of what we're about to talk about for the rest of this discussion sounds in that idea of fraud. So JW, that's what you do, right? Yeah. Fraud examination is what accountants and lawyers uh, who, who study uh, accountancy do. Tell us a little bit about how one goes about conducting a fraud examination of, well, anybody's tax returns, not just the president's, but generalize it for us and tell us how you would approach a question like this. Sure, Paul. And, and I think this lens can help sort of think about what the grand jury's doing in Cy Vance's investigation that he's already said might include fraud allegations. Um, so first, you identify the fraud predicate, the reason why you're doing the fraud investigation. 
and here, I mean, the public reporting about the tax leaks is is one of the reasons, but also the president's prior history, the allegations from Michael Cohen, the president's prior history in the Trump organization and the family's history with uh, prior fraud uh, admissions with respect to the Trump Foundation, uh, a settlement of fraud allegations with respect to Trump University. Um, so with all of that, you put together the fraud predicate, and that tells you what to look for, um, as many internal records as you can get. And I'd say probably step number one, probably one of the easiest steps for your more complicated frauds is uh, I want to see your tax returns and I want to see what you told the bank because the pressure goes in opposite directions for those two things. So I can compare what you told the tax man and what you told the bank. You want to try to lower the, let's talk specifically about appraisals of real estate assets in the Trump organization. I want to see what appraisals were you using with the tax man, and I want to see what appraisals were you using uh, with respect to the bank. Um, that's just one example of what we could be talking about here. And I think, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it seems to be likely, uh, Michael Cohen said, that there was uh, uh, an unexplainable difference. Now, Michael Cohen is an admitted felon, so we got to do our own homework there. Um, but if at any point, not only in the initial application for loans, but in the eventual communications with the bank, where the bank said, hey, we're checking in, how's your ratios indicating the health of your financials, uh, or negotiation over forbearance, the Trump organization says in an email with an attachment, uh, hey, we, uh, we like a little more time. We'd like to roll over this particular payment that's coming up and tack it onto the principal. Anything like that could potentially be actionable by Cy Vance. Um, I worry about the old 2012 documents that Michael Cohen referenced, because I wonder if that would be hit by the statute of limitations for Cy Vance. But uh, there could be more recent uh, you know, discussions just before or even during the president's presidency uh, that could uh, that could be actionable under a bank fraud action. Um, I, I, there's a lot of questions I have just to throw maybe two or three more out to sort of help decide how to help understand how I'm thinking about this. Um, I'd want to know, you know, Mazars was involved with his tax filings, but did they also help to prepare financial statements for bank applications or not? And if not, why not? Why did they not want to get involved in that? Uh, and if they prepare, did they audit or did they just review or compile the financial statements? Those are the kind of the three basic types of things an auditor does. Um, and the review and the compile are much lower sort of, uh, you know, don't blame us if things go wrong is, is sort of the auditor standard for compilation of financial statements. Uh, so I'd be I'd want to see that, and uh, I'd want to see if the Trump Organization is paying insurance for property no longer reflected on its books. That's also a common theme in fraud investigations. And related party transactions is always a heightened area of concern for fraud investigators. And oh my goodness, this is this is a web of related party transactions. The Trump Organization is not even one company; it's a web of like sixty different companies. Partly owned by family, some partly not owned by family, some partly owned by other investors to which Trump would owe a fiduciary duty. Uh, that web of related party transactions would make a fraud investigation actually very complex. So, well, we'll get back to some of that in just a minute, but uh, let's let's kind of turn to the some of that complicated stuff, Miranda. As I I read the tax stories, um, one of the most significant and enduring issues is the large tax loss that the president claimed with respect to the failure of his Atlantic City properties. 
Uh, so much so that he even got a refund, uh, which it looks like the IRS is now trying to claw back. They gave him the refund in error or or perhaps prematurely. I really don't understand that. Could you explain to us how it is one gets a tax loss write-off like this, how it is one gets a refund early, and what all this might mean for the audit that's ongoing of the president's taxes? Sure. And you're right. This is one of the more complicated uh, aspects of the tax return story. So Trump is claiming that he abandoned his stake in his casinos and therefore should get a $700 million abandonment loss. And to get an abandonment loss, you have to completely give up your property. And if you do that, two things happen. First, that loss can be treated like other business losses and then used to offset ordinary income, like income from a reality TV show. And two, thanks to some rules that were made more generous after the Great Recession, Trump could have used those abandonment losses to offset business income from prior years. So he was using that loss to offset millions of dollars of income from The Apprentice during its peak years in the mid-2000s. And that's what generated the $72 million refund. That big loss made it look like, oh gosh, I didn't need to pay all those taxes on The Apprentice income. Now I get a refund. But the IRS is saying it shouldn't be treated as an abandonment loss, but rather as a loss from a sale because he got something back. After the bankruptcy from the casinos wrapped up, he apparently got a stake in a new company. And so if you get something back, it's not an abandonment loss, it's a sale. And losses from sales are not as helpful to taxpayers as business losses. They can only offset $3,000 of ordinary income. And after that, they can only offset capital gains, not the type of income from a reality TV show. And they can't be carried back. So he wouldn't have been able to use that loss to offset income from prior years. They can only be used going forward. So it sounds much more like a sale or exchange to me and other tax experts who have worked on similar transactions, but I haven't seen the documents. And one takeaway is that if he loses on this issue, he has to pay back the $72 million refund plus interest. So if he loses, he's on the hook to the IRS for about $100 million. So he really has an interest in dragging this out as long as possible and uh, convincing the IRS that he did abandon his stake, though I think it's a tough argument to make. Speaking of of, of dragging it out, Miranda, I, I mean, this seems like it's been going on for quite some time already. What's the normal timeline for something like this? If this were a normal case involving someone who wasn't the president, albeit one with quite a lot of money at stake, what would you expect the regular timeline to be for resolution? Probably not nine or 10 years. So when there is a refund over a certain number million dollars, I think it's two million, but I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, certain certain parties in the IRS and an entity called the Joint Committee on Taxation automatically look at it. So this looking at this refund started, you know, nine or eight or nine years ago, long before he threw his hat into the ring for president. So this isn't some persecution of him. This is something that happens automatically. But I would say, I don't know how long those usually take. I would say nine or 10 is unusual. And 
I think the IRS probably has every interest right now in dragging it out as long as possible because we've seen in other contexts how miserable he makes life for anyone that tries to hold him accountable for his actions. So you think the IRS is pulling its punches? I I honestly have no idea. I mean, his taxes are so, so, so confusing that it could probably also take a while for them to dig through it all, certainly not nine or 10 years. Um, He has very high-powered lawyers who are probably assisting them. A lot of times the two parties negotiate on these and reach some resolutions. I think this is past the normal statute of limitations, and it's my understanding, though I could be wrong, that they've agreed to extend the statute of limitations for a while. So this is like looking into a black box a little bit right now, trying to figure out why it's taking so long. Okay, fair enough. So let me go back to you, JW. Um, Another one of the issues that's kind of come out of this that that, uh, you alluded to briefly in your discussion of fraud... um, in your discussion of fraud techniques is is the idea of uh, uh, fraud on the bank for kind of uh, misstating your a- assets to the bank, well, often for purposes of getting a loan or something like that. Now, you mentioned Michael Cohn, who is indeed a convicted felon, uh, and but he testified that uh, Trump lied to Deutsche Bank, which had loaned Trump billions of dollars over the years by inflating his own wealth in order to secure his loans. He, Cohn is said to have provided with the congressional investigators with a, a financial statement in which Trump added hundreds of millions of dollars to the value of his properties. So assuming all of that's true, what kind of criminal fraud statutes might be implicated here? And what kind of civil fraud actions might the bank have? Yeah, well, the um, uh, there are a couple of things that would be available to Cy Vance in his grand jury investigation of Trump. This is the case that has led to the, the multiple hearings on uh, whether or not the grand jury can obtain Trump's tax returns, which is on its final stage. Uh, second round of appeal is waiting uh, uh, consideration by Supreme Court. And I think probably by most expectations, the Supreme Court is unlikely to take it up this time. They'll kick it. And I think Vance is going to get what he's looking for. Um, bank fraud, insurance fraud, or falsifying business records are probably the three, uh, I think the three things that Vance could use, the the three tools he's got at his disposal, making a false application for insurance in an application for insurance, um, fraudulent written statements supporting your insurance application, whether it's to try to prove that you have the money to pay the premiums that the insurance company is expecting, or it's because you lie about the value of the thing that is being insured um, or in some other fashion. Uh, I mentioned only because Cy Vance has mentioned that specifically. Uh, so I, I'm guessing um, that he mentioned that because he expects the possibility of some insurance fraud, more likely uh, because Michael Cohen mentioned it and because it makes sense uh, that someone would uh, generally, someone with a lot of loans and with a lot of tax issues um, and some incredible pressure to re-up those loans to get the bank to forbear and continue to loan money past the, the date the final principal payment is due. Um you know, brings in the possibility of bank fraud. There are a couple of statutes here in Section 175 of New York Criminal Code that could apply. Um, Falsifying business records in the first degree uh, means that you falsify business records with an intent to defraud and also in aid of another crime. So that would depend upon whether or not there's some other crime other than fraud that the fraud is aiding. Uh, That's pretty heavy. It's a Class E felony in New York. You can get some hard time for that. 
um, I think more uh, a lower bar to to to, to proof a lower uh, uh, evidentiary burden would be issuing a false financial statement, which is a class A misdemeanor in New York, carries a sentence of of, of up to one year in prison, uh, and that is like I said, it would a fact pattern simply sending an email to a bank uh, with an attachment with some fraudulent materially fraudulent information in it about your finances, your revenues, your expenses, your assets, anything. Uh, can get you that one year in prison. And so any communication with Deutsche Bank from from Trump and the Trump organization um, or from the Trump organization approved by Donald Trump could make uh, Trump liable. Uh, one of the questions I have is whether or not Cy Vance is going to seek to indict just the Trump organization or any individual specifically. That's something we're going to have to watch very closely. Of course, in these investigations, the target is always the person all the way at the top and uh, they're hard to get to. So oftentimes the indictments will seek to indict first lower level people and then get them to flip and then move upward up the chain. Um, uh, the, also sort of an added dimension here is the question of can Cy Vance even indict a sitting president? Um, and we know from the cases that have gone up, uh, the Supreme Court is sort of, and, the, and the Second Circuit have sort of grappled with this question and said, well, if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, uh, we know he could be indicted. But short of that, we won't draw the line yet because we don't have to right now. So we don't know. Uh, so he might wait on indicting uh, Trump directly until he no longer has to litigate that question in the event Trump loses. But that's another dimension to the grand jury kind of strategy for for uh, Manhattan D.A. Vance. Yeah, I'm not too worried about the latter of those uh, with the election so close and and the fact that Vance has yet to get some of the documents. I'm I'm reasonably confident that if he decides to bring a case against Trump, he's comfortable at least waiting until next January if Trump loses, I don't know if he'd be willing to wait for four more years if Trump wins. So we'd have to see that. Um, and actually, so before I go back to Miranda for so, uh, another tax question, I want to say with you about something, JW, you talked about how uh, the uh, target of all investigations like this is the person at the top. And you also said something about how hard it is to get to the top. I explain to our listeners why it is that somebody at the top of an organization, whether it's Trump or any other CEO, uh, might be uh, insulated from uh, liability by virtue of his position. What is it about the law that makes it harder to prove a case against Trump than, say, against Michael Cohen or or any of his subordinates? Well, if the crime is the communication to the bank, uh, the, the, the communication to the bank, to the insurance company, to the contractual counterparty generally. Um, I, I, I'm guessing Trump's not, not actually doing those emails. He's not actually putting together those attachments. He's not writing up the fraudulent financial statements. So um, he has to, in some way, direct someone to do that. And that's going to probably be an oral communication, uh, which is harder to establish, requires testimony and support. Uh, essentially, you got to flip somebody. Uh, you can implicate individuals directly for their fraudulent communications, and then you can implicate the organization without necessarily getting the chief executive officer or the board. You can, you can indict the organization uh, and the various companies making up the Trump organization. But I think to get Trump, you're going to have to flip someone there uh, and assuming that they've got credible testimony um, implicating him in the fraudulent statements, directing him, directing them, probably directing the CFO to put together fraudulent statements and communicate them. I think that's that's what's necessary. So so my prediction would be they would have to 
flip the the longtime CFO of the company uh, in order to to begin to build a case against Trump. Okay, well, that seems moderately, if not completely, unlikely. So, so perhaps that's a cautionary tale for those who think that that the miracle here is going to be a uh, uh, an indictment of the president when he leaves office. Uh, maybe we're throwing cold water on people's dreams, but. We try and engage in reality-based programming here. Well, well Paul, r- real quick, though, if, if you're the CFO and you're looking at 10 years, if they're able to stack the indictment with multiple fraud indications, you're looking at 10 or 15 years. I don't know. Is there, I mean, I, I, I would probably flip on, I'd probably flip on you to avoid 10 or 15 years, Paul. No offense. Well, that's very kind <laughs> of you, Jay Talbia. Uh, 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 the image of you flipping on me is just not one I want to have in my mind at this moment. <laughs> so, so let's 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 turn from bank fraud, Miranda, to um, uh, more on tax fraud and also what looks like a campaign finance violation or a possible one. Another revelation from the New York Times was that a a Trump controlled entity, the Trump Las Vegas Sales and Marketing, made a loan to the presidential campaign, and then uh, maybe appears to have taken a deduction, a tax deduction for the loan. They took out a $30 million loan from a bank and then gave $21 million, it seems, to Trump's campaign back in 2016. Uh, can you explain the dynamics of that to us and why that's an issue of fiscal concern? Sure. It's an issue for a couple reasons. And first, th- the dynamics are very complicated, as you said. And the, the fact that there are multiple entities and multiple transactions involved illustrate how difficult it is. Uh, sometimes to prove exactly what's going on. So there is this entity that really didn't seem to do much. It didn't have very much income. It didn't really make any payments or do much. They go to the bank, they take out a $30 million loan, and then all of a sudden they pay Trump $21 million. And then a few weeks later, he donates $10 million to his campaign. So it really looks like we should mush together the series of this transactions. But as you noted at the outset of this program, his whole setup is a web of 60 plus enterprises. And there are a lot of instances like this where just due to the timing of things, things look awfully, awfully fishy. So assuming we should smush all of these transactions together. um, First, the entity paying Trump $21 million all of a sudden doesn't look like a normal business expense for the company. So that would be something that the IRS should look into if it wasn't actually a payment for any type of services. That could be a fraudulent type of expense. And so that implicates tax. And then we have this election law implication. So candidates are supposed to disclose bank loans to their campaigns, which this in effect was, and he didn't disclose it. Second, the loan was guaranteed by his partner in the entity, and a loan guarantee counts as a campaign contribution, and the amount guaranteed exceeds contribution limits. So that's a violation of election law by both his partner for making it and his campaign for accepting it. And then there's another tax issue here, too, which is basically anytime you deduct something that you shouldn't, you are putting the burden on your scoffing at the laws on other taxpayers. So, Paul, I know you would never do this, but let's say that you uh, never did something that you shouldn't. Your taxes go down. Well, then JW's taxes and my taxes have to go up to make up for your improper deduction. 
So in that sense, the company deducting the payment to Trump then to the campaign sort of forced taxpayers to subsidize the campaign contribution, which we very much do not do. Strikes me, you know, from this conversation that it's impossibly complicated or not impossibly complicated, uh, but very, very complicated, especially when uh, an actor like like Trump or like any other sophisticated white collar actor, uh, you know, cloaks his activity in in multiple different layers of corporate structure. Uh, JW, you know, how much effort does it take to unpack these kinds of things? What kind of uh, uh, what kind of level of expertise and, and ac- action are we talking about? Just generically, leave aside Trump for a second. Um, well, it, it 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 is a lot more difficult when it involves um, people that are less famous, less known. Um, I mean, I think a, I think a fraud ex- examination of of Donald of the Trump organization would take a lot of time, but um, given all the working parts of of uh, public accusations against him and his prior history, I think it would be much easier than it is in the normal course of events. Because you, you you don't know who the highly suspected actors are. Oftentimes, you don't know um, the the presence of related party transactions. And so, these other LLCs that the company's doing business with, you think, are they legitimate or not? I don't know. But here, we already know that uh, sixty plus of them are. I'm not. I'm not going to say illegitimate, but related parties. And knowing identifying those related parties makes the examination a whole lot easier. Also, I would say that there are so many new laws in the last twenty thirty years. Uh, making it difficult uh, to conduct fraud with multiple entities and creating crimes out of the uh, 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 and it's just kind of building on building on the prosecutorial flexibility with respect to wire fraud or New York's version of it with respect to business records fraud. I mean, I'll say generally as a libertarian, I'm generally very very uh, much a critic of the incredible discretion given to prosecutors in white collar criminal investigations, but. I think that's going to be a tremendous asset with respect to the investigation of Trump at the state level. And we haven't even talked yet about whether or not various, uh, you know, all of this would be actionable under various federal fraud rules. Um, and we don't know yet whether that will be a possibility, whether Trump will uh, pardon himself, whether you can do that and all of that. That's probably another podcast. Oh, it it certainly is. <laughs> um, but let, let's actually stay with, with, let me stay with you for just a second, Jay, because you just said something that is actually kind of interesting to me and I mean not that I've ever expressed any sympathy for the for the man but you you've suggested that Trump's notoriety actually redounds to his detriment rather than his benefit by making the investigation of him, him easier uh, would it be fair to say that he may come to regret having decided to run for president because of, of the way in which he called the spotlight onto his own uh, activity I think that's a fair expectation. Yeah. Interesting. I do. Really fascinating. I mean, again, not that we should, well, not that I personally feel too much sympathy for the man, but it it is a case of be careful what you wish for. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think if we prosecuted everyone who inflates assets on a bank loan application, we wouldn't have any more room in the jails, but uh, he becomes a much more interesting target for such an investigation. Wow. So, so let let's let me turn back to you, Miranda, and talk about a a relatively notorious example of that. Um, 
that comes from the New York Times, and and maybe maybe it's a perfect example of that. Uh, uh, under the 2017 revisions to the tax law, state and local deductions are now limited to ten thousand dollars for individuals, uh, but not for corporations. Uh, my my personal taxes have been limited in that way all of a sudden. Donald Trump has deducted over two million for a property called Seven Springs, a 200 acre country estate that he says he owns solely for investment purposes, which would make it a corporation uh, owned asset and therefore uh, not subject to the limitation. But he's also publicly said that it's a retreat for his family and his sons, Eric and Donnie Jr., have called it our family compound. If it's privately held and used, um, is that deduction uh, legit? No, I mean, it's not. If it's used for family purposes, and from what we can tell, it is, then it should be subject to the same limitations as his other state and local taxes. I mean, even as of last night, the Trump Organization website still called it a retreat for the family. If I worked for them, I would have cleaned up that web pages the minute the New York Times story came out, but I don't work for them, um, <laughs> luckily. So he, he spent years trying to get approval to develop this plot of land, and then he just stopped trying in 2013. So nothing suggests he's holding it for investment. And I think um, I might have misspoken earlier. It, I think the rule is if you hold property for investment or business purposes, then you can deduct more than 10000 Um Maybe he hopes to make money by selling it one day, but the fact that the family is using it in the meantime means that it's not an investment and the deductions appear to have been improper because they seem to be above that $10,000 limit. So um, another issue with respect to the Seven Springs, let me say with you, Miranda, is that it raises more questions about his charitable giving. Uh, because he claimed a charitable deduction for a conservation easement uh, on the property that he valued at $21.1 million. What's up with that? Yeah. So this really highlights his fraught relationship with charity. So a conservation easement is when landowners promise not to develop parts of their property, but instead they set parts of it aside for conservation purposes. And in theory, the value of your land goes down when you promise not to develop it, and that drop in value you can claim as a charitable contribution and deduct it from your taxes. Now, these are often abused. JW has talked about inflated appraisals. And across the board, I mean, not all of them are inflated appraisals, but a lot of them are, so much that Congress has held hearings about them. Anyway, the New York Attorney General is investigating some of Trump's easement deductions, including the valuation for Seven Springs. And as I just mentioned, we know that he couldn't develop the land due to neighbors' objections. So his quote-unquote promise not to develop it is almost certainly not worth $21 million. And from what we can tell of the appraisal he used, the appraisers assumed that he could develop the land into 24 mansions. But the most he ever got permission to do was to put nine mansions on it. And then he never followed through with that. And what I find interesting is this is just another example of him playing fast and loose with charitable funds. You may recall that his private foundation was shut down by New York State, in part because it engaged in self-dealing, like buying a life-size painting of him that, it then, that he then hung at one of his private clubs. 
And at one point, they paid his son's $7 Boy Scout dues. So it, it shows the way he just nickel and dimes everyone. And again, to my knowledge, the IRS hasn't gone after him for his charitable shenanigans. This was the New York State Attorney General who did. But this this seems like the kind of aspects with respect to a charitable organization, and these are tax-exempt organizations, that could trigger tax consequences also. You know, we could go on like this for forever, uh, but uh, let's end, JW, with a a process question for you. Um, A a lot of what is happening uh, now is, uh, has motivated uh, Congress and the uh, Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, to seek copies of the president's tax returns, to seek access to his records from his accountants, Mazars, and from his bank accounts, uh, Deutsches Bank. Um, What's the status of all those current lawsuits? Where are they and how much longer will they go on, do you think? Um, Well, the the Vance investigation is a grand jury investigation seeking Trump's tax returns and other related financial records. And Cy Vance has indicated it could involve bank fraud, insurance fraud, uh, or or uh, business record fraud generally, which encompasses the bank fraud. Uh, he's sought the tax returns. He's gone through a whole series of challenges all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court heard it, had a huge opinion about it, uh, talking about the contours of what you can seek from a president. And then uh, Trump has gone through a second round saying that even though he lost and the, uh, the, the subpoena is proper, generally speaking, he thinks just looking at it as a subpoena, it's overbroad. Uh, so even though Vance's grand jury can subpoena the documents, the Supreme Court has determined, he's said, well, they're overbroad. It's an overbroad subpoena. So it's a bad subpoena, even though you can do a subpoena. Uh, so that went up, it just got smacked down by the Second Circuit in an embarrassing, uh, I think, for, for, for Trump's attorney opinion. So we're just waiting on the Supreme Court to decide whether or not to take up cert. If it does not, as most expect, it will not. Then I think it's a matter of weeks before Cy Vance has those documents in hand. Um, so I probably I wouldn't expect. First of all, I wouldn't expect the public will see his tax returns. Uh, nor should you really want to. Now that you've you've, I mean, uh, uh, other than um, other than to, to, I think it would be interesting to the public to be able to verify the stories in the New York Times. But you know, for the average person, it's not like we're anybody's going to be able to decipher a smoking gun without somebody else to kind of help walk them through it. And, and I think the New York Times stories has already sort of done that. Um, but I think that we'll see action from the grand jury. The grand jury has to decide whether or not it has probable cause to issue an indictment. So it's a probable cause. It's a fairly low bar. Um, unfortunately, it's very easy for grand juries to indict people in this country. Uh, and if 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 the tax returns are anything like the New York Times story, I think there's probably enough there for the grand jury to determine probable cause, uh, at which point all sorts of interesting things start to happen next year. Uh, and I think given the fact that Vance has, has so committed himself to this, I don't think there's any backing out just uh, to sort of, um, you know, try to, to, to sort of go along with the theory we, we shouldn't indict former presidents because it's just a bad president. I mean, I think he's pretty well committed to, to this grand jury process. Uh, so I, I think that will be a story that will continue in the next year. Well, that's fascinating. So, Miranda, you've written that criminal tax fraud is really hard to prove. JW seems optimistic. Um, at least, or or uh, seems to think that it's likely. Uh, 
leaving aside the really complex and totally different issue of, of whether or not a president or an ex-president can or should be charged criminally, based on what you know, do you think Trump's liable to criminal prosecution for tax fraud? You know, that's really hard to say because, as you just mentioned, it is a very, very high bar to prove criminal tax fraud. You basically have to show that you knew what you were doing was not kosher with respect to the tax code and you did it anyway. Like, Paul, you would never do this, but if you just decided not to list your salary income or if you made up a bunch of bogus receipts for checks and balances and then tried to write those off, something like that. Um, with respect to the complicated transactions, he does use high-priced Wall Street lawyers and accounting firms, and they will have done their best to keep him just this side of legal, like with the haircuts. If, if there's sort of one or two pieces of precedent that say someone similar has done something and it was okay, that means your position wasn't frivolous and you haven't really committed fraud. Um with some of the more obvious things like the consulting payments of 26 million where we don't really know where they went to it looks like some of his businesses all of a sudden had more expenses than they usually do you know we would really have to see once you get into sort of just billing people for nothing and making up receipts and making up invoices that is the type of thing that can count as fraud but with without seeing more you know it, it's hard for me to say. I, I wish we could, but I wouldn't hang my hat on it. It's a very high bar. Well, that's that's kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I guess we can kind of leave it there, uh, which has been a, a, an interesting tour de horizon of uh, President Trump's taxes and President Trump's bank fraud and or bank uh, problems. And uh, the open question of whether or not it can or should be uh, subject to uh, prosecution when and if he leaves office. So we always try and end these these uh, uh, podcasts with a little bit of good news. I, I think that the good news from the past week is the story of Hunter Biden's alleged laptop. Not because I think that there's much to that story at all. Indeed, it has been pretty much debunked by every information security professional that I know of, with good reason, but rather because it really says that we in America have made a great deal of progress since 2016. You know, four years ago, that kind of Russian disinformation would have been energized and spread around the Twitterverse and the Facebookverse um, without anybody saying otherwise or speaking against it. This time, we treat it with a great deal more caution, uh, quick reviews of it demonstrate its its irrelevance, if not uh, falsity. And in the end, we seem to have seen in the last uh, few years a maturation of our ability to distinguish between disinformation and truthful reporting. So that's the good news as we run up to the election. Uh, and that's a wrap for our show. Thank you for joining us. We'll be releasing a new show every Monday. This episode and all of our future episodes are available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else that you can download podcasts. We hope you'll subscribe. And these podcasts are also archived on our website, cnb.org, if you want to find them there. I want to thank you, uh, express my thanks again to Miranda Perry Fleischer and J.W. Ferre for joining us on the, today's podcast. My name is Paul Rosenzweig, and I'm your host. And we end each podcast with a quote about the rule of law. This one is from James Callahan, 
the former prime minister of the United Kingdom, who said the rule of law should be upheld by all political parties. They should neither advise others to break the law nor encourage others to do so, even when they strongly disagree with legislation put forward by the other party. And on that hopefully positive note and cautionary note, uh, I want to thank you all for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. Take care.